there's nothing more significant than corporate worship. And hopefully this morning will lead you to that same conclusion uh, in all the universe, that there is something profound and eternal about what God's people get the privilege of doing each and every Lord's Day. And I hope that and that alone is, is pressed in uh, all the more this morning from our time. I want to begin by just telling you a little bit of a story. It's not a sob story. It's just a true story. But it's a story of my relationship to my grandfather. I only met my grandfather probably two times in my life. Once when I was probably five. And the, the last time when I was about 25. And his story has always stood out to me as one that represents someone whose life took the direction of a deliberate abandonment of God's gracious gift of corporate worship. Um, he chose to worship God privately by himself every day, reading his Bible, listening to sermons, giving to whichever ministry he wanted, but everything about his spiritual life after decades, so probably until his 60s, he, he made this decisive switch for the next 30 years of his life. And then all of life became calibrated to him. It was all about worship on his terms, uh, scripture reading on his terms, prayer on his terms, singing on his own on his terms. Everything, even giving, as I mentioned, goes exactly where I want to. So the gathering of God's people was no longer a thing that he thought was significant. And a series of bad experiences soiled his overall view, and he, he decided, I'm done with this altogether. I can have everything I need, just me and God, and that's all that matters. Um, the essence of worship for him was isolated God and I time. That allowed him to gain Bible knowledge without ever having to defer his preferences in any area in love for others. Some Christians walk my grandfather's path as well of abandoning this gift of corporate worship altogether, but more will likely remain in churches where different hazards are put before them week after week, namely mindless attendance. Many Christians will see to it that their body arrives on time, but they simply fail to discern the unique grace provided by God in gathered Christian corporate worship. So sadly, there's oftentimes this great fog that exists among church members, uh, as well as some church leaders, as, as to why the bride of Christ gathers for worship on the Lord's day. There is an even greater fog about why, what precisely Christians should be doing during each element of biblically ordered worship services. Where should our thoughts be focused? Where should our hearts be directed? What should it even mean on a very practical level to worship God with other brothers and sisters? How do we know if we're thinking and acting correctly in accord with God's will? And isn't everything before the sermon just the opening stuff that more or less just sort of, you know, tenderizes the meat? It just sort of gets things going for the real thing that's important. The preaching of the word. Well, our goal this morning, simply stated, and 
I hope you're, I, I, I tried to pack your uh, handout there, and that handout should, should serve you through the entirety of our morning today, um, leaving you with even a little bit of homework on the last page. I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that later, but I hope that gives you some, and feel free to, to, to make notes and, uh, sure, I can do that. Uh, feel free to make notes and whatever you need to do uh, to, to track along. But our goal for today is simply to, to help believers, to help you and I grow in our understanding of, our appreciation for, and our participation in each element of Worship, of, of scripturally constructed worship services, of God's gracious gift of corporate worship. So first of all, and we have to begin here, what is worship? We hear that a lot, but, but what is it? Well, let's first say what it is not. Uh, worship, contrary to popular opinion, is, is not a feeling. Although genuine worship will oftentimes gen- uh, result in genuine affections for God and for his, per, his promises and for his people. Uh, worship is not an experience, although it may bring meaningful experiences. There may be sermons that you remember 10 years ago. There may be songs sung uh, in, a, in, a, in a, a worship service that impacted you tremendously and, and caused you to repent of sin. I mean, there, there, there's mile markers along the way, uh, but it, the, 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 the purpose of worship is not to generate an experience per se. Worship is not a style such that real worship can go out of style. And so the church is always chasing what is in style. And then worship is not a brand such that it needs a marketing team to constantly evaluate what new expectations are being demanded by the market. All these definitions and Ways of envisioning worship are alive and well in our culture and in our churches. So then what is worship? Well, worship is the very point of our existence. Both testaments convey a wide range of expressions for concepts and actions associated with worship. From Genesis to Revelation, worship is a dominant theme that at least in some way relates to every passage of Scripture in our Bibles. The famous uh, first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism that you may be aware of, what is the chief end of man? The answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. In a way, this is the essence of worship, to glorify and enjoy God for who he is and for all he has done. In a very helpful book uh, written recently, Jonathan Gibson, in this book, Reformation Worship, He says, worship is the right, fitting, and delightful response of moral beings, angelic and human, to God the creator, redeemer, and consummator, for who he is as one eternal God in three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, and for what he has done in creation and redemption, and for what he will do in the coming consummation, to whom be all glory and praise now and forever, world without end. Amen. It's a longer definition. Another book that's... uh, one of the top and most helpful uh, theological books on worship is by David Peterson. It's called Engaging with God. And his definition is simply, worship is an engagement with God on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. 
Now, it's a pretty general definition, but what it does is it allows for equal application under the old covenant as well as the new. And that as the way in which God relates to, to, uh, through different covenants to his people, he's still graciously calling them to worship his name and to know the, the joys and the benefits of trusting him and worshiping him. But I think probably the most helpful uh, definition that tries and does a really good job of encapsulating all of the, uh, the, the usage of the, the verbs that describe worship. So not just the word itself and getting those passages, but, but the usage in, in all the places it appears through scripture encapsulates at, at least three categories that Daniel Block in his book, For the Glory of God, brings out. And that's here. True worship involves reverential human acts of submission, homage. So homage, what is that? That's, that's public gestures, physical, uh, and, and of course, in accord with the heart, but a, a visible, uh, a reverential acts of, of love for a, a sovereign, a divine a God of some sort. So homage and service. I added that little piece um, because I think it encapsulates a whole nother category of, uh, of the biblical text before the divine sovereign in response to his gracious revelation of himself and in accord with his will. Now we could unpack that a little bit more and we could, uh, I would love to get into all the scriptures that demonstrate this, but I think this is a very serviceable, helpful definition, a little bit, a little bit dense, but, but it's helpful. So then if that's worship, what is corporate worship? How is that different? Well, corporate worship can be a confusing term. And let me first uh, do a little qualifying again by what it does not mean. By corporate worship, I do not mean to convey anything about corporate America or the commercialization of worship uh, that has happened over the last several decades, especially. Uh, a well-meaning elderly lady in uh, the church I grew up in down in South Carolina when asked about this question um, she, she wrote the following. She said, I never heard the term corporate worship until later in life. The term corporate worship rubs me the wrong way. I would rather hear a different word used. Somehow, I think the word corporate belongs only in the business boardroom. Now, I understand what she's saying. I, I know what she's saying. She, she wants to distance herself in every way from the, the commercialization of worship. But, but don't get hung up on the word per se. All it, all it conveys... Um, is, is a collective sense of worship that is not individual or private, but is, is corporate or collective or, or involving a, a group of Christians. So it, it, it also, as you see there in your notes, I do not mean by corporate worship that this is what takes place uh, when Christians gather for a Bible study. Edifying? You bet. Um, even essential? Yeah. Sure, uh, but, but envisioning all that, that the scriptures envision for corporate worship as we're narrowly going to look into it this morning, um, not so much. I also do not mean to say anything negative about uh, worship that might take place on a college campus or in a Christian school or at a Christian concert or, or in, in some other uh, parachurch ministry. Nothing negative there. It's just outside the definition of what we're looking at this morning. These are wonderful things. Um, we're just working a little more narrowly. So the definition of corporate worship we want to work, work with is this. 
corporate worship is the regular gathering. So this would be, I, 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 you could also say the, the weekly gathering. But uh, there, are, there are certain times, other duly appointed times, uh, funerals or unique uh, times when the church gathers, that's not on the Lord's Day. Uh, I would say it's at least on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, uh, but perhaps more times. The regular gathering of God's people, so that is to say born-again believers do this. That's not to say that the lost are not able to participate or to be uh, counted among, uh, i got to say this carefully, uh, are not welcome and do not, uh, should not be expected to be present. But this is a grace that the spirit-regenerated people of God do. Uh, worshiping the triune God in spirit, this is the spirit-empowered nature of, of corporate worship and truth. So all that the church does ought to be regulated by the scriptures. So it's not up to our, our inventiveness to come up with whatever we want to think about what scripture ought to look like or what uh, our, our services ought to look like. But this is uh, what the scriptures outline. By proclaiming the gospel, corporate worship should highlight the work of Christ. It should represent the work of the gospel in word, Bible-centered preaching, scripture readings, in songs, as we have clear commands to do this, and in symbol, in, through the ordinances, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, as a covenanted assembly. And I, I add that piece at the end because that is what makes a church a church. Uh, if Christians simply share space, but they've made no covenant together to do and to be all that the Lord says they are to do and be, they're just a gathering of miscellaneous Christians in the same sharing air or trying not to uh, during COVID, <laughs> but they're in the same location. It's that covenant together to observe all that the Lord has uh, commanded and to fulfill the great commission to teach one another to observe all that Christ has commanded. Now, what is the relationship, though, between all of life worship, something we, we hear, hear quite a bit about, uh, and corporate worship? So it's not rare that your average church-going American evangelical will struggle to put together a scriptural definition of corporate worship. He or she may uh, likely say things like, well, all of life is worship, so that's what's really important. Church is just kind of one of those icing on the cake type of things that really, it's really good for you and it can build you up and give you friendships. Um, but, you know, worshiping an all of life, that's what's like really important. Now, this idea isn't wrong. Um, in fact, what they're describing, all of life worship is thoroughly biblical. Absolutely. But it's often misused to justify a casual dating-like relationship that a lot of Christians can have towards the church. You know, I'll, I'll mine it for its benefits for me. I'll frequent it like a customer, but if it's not doing what I want it to do, I, I'll just take my, my loyalties elsewhere. Um, and a lot of folks can think this way. Well, make no mistake about it though. Uh, even life under the old covenant so life under the, in, you know, as we read in the Old Testament, this was predicated, life was predicated on living all of one's life to the glory of God. 
We shouldn't think in terms of all, all, all of life worship as a New Testament thing. Not at all. Uh, as soon as God constitutes a people for himself at Mount Sinai, he gave his law through his servant Moses for the purpose of leading his people to connect the dots between who he is and his glorious promises that he's just given to his servant Moses and how now every nook and cranny of life, God has an opinion about it. That is why the law is so extensive, not to truly crush them, but to show God cares about everything. And this is so significant. We even see in Deuteronomy chapter 10, a great um, uh, synthesis of this. And now, Israel, what does the Lord require of you? And you could even have a, uh, you know, a finger up for each of these descriptions. To fear the Lord your God, trusting with an awe-struck, uh, um, transfixed, glorious gaze. To fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to live your life imitating him. To love him, God-like sacrificial covenantal love. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. This is expending of oneself and sacrificial love because of who he is and for what he's done. And then lastly, to keep the commandments, the statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding of you today for your good. Leviticus impresses this as well and very clearly as every description of life is to be under the, the law and the rule of God. From the, the length of one's hair, to the composition of one's garments, to what a person eats, to what degree someone should be punished for a particular sin. In all these ways, God is declaring, I care about it all. And my glory is to be displayed through it all. The prophets warn time and again of the wickedness of thinking this perfunctory, just go through the motion, mindless routine type of version of love for God and, and a allegiance to him and the worship of his name. We see under the new covenant, the essence of worship receives quite an upgrade, doesn't it? As Jesus himself now, rather than a temple or a tabernacle, mediates unhindered access to God. John chapter 4, Jesus teaching uh, on worship to the woman at the well is significant in this way. And Romans chapter 12 grounds all of life worship in this unceasing uh, life of sacrifice that we are to live. And yet this is not the sum total of what God has said about worship. God expects that worship will be both private and public, individual and collective. In fact, everything about the public collective sense really falls apart, doesn't it? Without the personal and without the individual. In fact, the Lord promises unique blessings when his people gather in his name. So just to illustrate uh, corporate worship here as the, the center of the human experience, we might say, Generally, all humans in all places are worshipers. Perhaps you've heard from time to time people say, all people are theologians. They are. Everyone has an opinion about God, whether it's accurate to the scriptures or not. 
Well, in the same way, every human is a worshiper. And they will worship, as Romans 1 tells us, all the wrong things. And instead of for your good, like Deuteronomy 10 says, it's for their destruction. And they will worship all that harms them and hurts them and sends them to eternal separation from God. So we might say all, all, uh, all people in, in ring one there are worshipers. Number two all is, is all of life worship. And, <laughs> and number three is the center of that, corporate Christian worship. So since the moment Adam and Eve were expelled from Eden, God, though, has been working to restore a worshiping community to himself. And in uh, the next hour during the worship service, we'll walk through the significance of being counted among this worshiping community and how it is that uh, we come to know the unique presence of God in corporate worship. I came across an illustration that I found recently that was helpful that draws out the distinction between all of life worship and corporate worship. And that has to do with this right here. The U.S. Supreme Court. Not a hot topic at all, right? Uh, these days. Well, if you live near Washington, D.C., um, and everything feels different now, but just imagine life without a pandemic and virus. But if you live around Washington, D.C., and you may from time to time see one of these chief justices of the United States at uh, an opera at the Kennedy Center or at a, a uh, pro sports game, you might perhaps see them individually around town. Uh, but a chief justice uh, is who they are when gathered with the court. So when the Supreme Court justices meet as a court to make formal judgments, they take on a unique joint identity. Together they may wield an authority far greater than just the sum of their parts. Lawyers begin uh, to speak not with, may it please the justices, but may it please the, the court. There is a collective, unified authority and identity that they now bear together. That is unique. And God has designed in a similar way the local church as a people who meet. It doesn't work any other way. Now, if God's plan to restore a worshiping community is as significant as it appears throughout scripture, and it is, it naturally follows that the regular gathering of the saints would prove extremely formative to our overall spiritual development. So if we, if we come to the Lord as infants, and it's the will of God that we would mature until we meet God face to face, it is God's gracious gift of the gathered assembly to play a central role in that growth, in that maturing process. It also follows that we should expect Satan and all the forces of darkness to be dead set on destroying this gift and distracting the people of God from gleaning and coming to know all the grace that God intends to give in corporate worship. So let's, in the few minutes that remain, let's think through some of the threats to corporate worship. 
some of the threats to corporate worship. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I've tried to think through what we might say and uh, our you know, red alert or red, uh, red flags, and then some that are a little more yellow alert, uh, yellow flags. So we, we might say uh, critical and, and chronic. Some that are just going to always be there for even the most faithful Christians, and some that we have to uh, be incredibly watchful for and uh, attack immediately and be on guard uh, most significantly for. So let's look at these critical threats, the, the red alert, red flags, uh, threats to corporate worship. Well, first of all, would, would have to be an unbelieving heart, right? An unbelieving heart. The worst case scenario, you might say, is this group of people putting on a show that looks like a worship service, but is compromised to its core by either false doctrine or a, a charlatan for a leader. Unbelievers are expected to be present in worship in one sense. And we know this from texts like 1 Corinthians 14, but only as an onlooking minority. So they observe the worshiping majority, praising God and, and, and trusting in the promises of God so that, that that worshiping community elicits the response in their heart, surely God is in this place. And they fall on their face and they repent of their sin and they trust. It shouldn't be the opposite, right? <laughs> that rare that we might ever find an actual Christian in a church. No, this is not God's design. The second critical th threat is related but that would be a pharisaical heart, right? And what an example we see in Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees time and time again. His harshest words uh, seem to be reserved for this group of people, content with getting the externals of worship just right while they slip into teaching as doctrine the commandments of men, uh, hoping to get the inner man um, neglected. So the outer man looks like that whitewashed tomb. There's, there's nothing alive inside, but, but the externals are on point. That's a, that is a critical threat to vibrant Christian worship. Number three is an experience hungry heart. We talked a little bit about this earlier, but hearts that are hungry for the, the feeling or the experience of being uh, amped up or related or elated, uh, emotionally lost in the euphoria of worship. Um, don't see any fog machines unless that's going to make some fog later. No strobe lights. I think we're <laughs> not at, at risk of that threat this morning. Um, however, there's a variety of ways that our experience can creep in and become the overriding governor of how we evaluate whether a Sunday was good or not. And just being an American evangelical, we are very experiential people. We evaluate almost every product by how it affects us uh, experientially. This could be for some the, the, the feeling or the experience of a lighthearted jovial service in which the language and the music and the jokes have kind of a country club feel about it. Some churches have that and they think if that, that, this is our style. This is the way I have to worship God. 
Some have the experience of being uh, connected to ancient worship through the smells and bells, as it's sometimes called, of incense and ancient prayers and uh, Gregorian chants and insisting on hymns that are at least a thousand years old or something like that. That's still an experience. Sometimes at our church, we'll talk about that as, as uh, if, if you believe that, you know, I must have blank to worship God. If that's anything other than Jesus Christ, you're, you, you, if, if it's an organ, if it's an electric guitar, if it's uh, something that you feel is a non-negotiable, uh, I have to have worship on my terms to really get my heart in the right place. We may be well on our way to idolatry. Uh, and we have to watch that. So this pitfall, this experience hungry heart, uh, is a pitfall that approaches worship like we do with finding a restaurant that has just the right menu, just the right ambiance, you know, just sets the atmosphere just perfect. Ha, that's, that's what I like. I'm going to go here every Friday night. That type of an approach. That can be very, very contrary to genuine, vibrant corporate worship. And that fourth one there is performance-oriented hearts. Preachers, musicians, I almost said magicians, <laughs> musicians, uh, scripture readers, prayer leaders alike can all run the risk of viewing their ministry as a performance. It's dangerous. It is not a recital hall. This threat can also run rampant in the hearts of proud friends and family members who, who love to uh, see their loved ones as those performers. And, and they, they view like a, uh, a piano recital or something. Oh, my, my kid's coming up next. You know, and, and obviously there is a joy, there's a healthy joy in watching your loved ones serve the Lord. That, there's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes that can creep into nothing more than uh, sort of, <laughs> my dear grandmother probably did this more than I'd like to admit. But it, it's, a, it's an opportunity to, to uh, in an unhelpful way, use the worship of God as a platform for uh, performance. And again, we could, you, you might say, ah, it's kind of a yellow flag. I'd put that one. That's fine. We can put these in different places and they have a range in and of themselves. But this could also be the disposition, this performance oriented of a person who's hypercritical of every aspect of worship. And they evaluate it like a music judge scoring an orchestra or a soloist at a music festival or a competition where they believe they're, they're the person sort of at the table in the back with the, the red pen and they're just, you know, and every single thing is getting a, a harsh critique. Critique is essential if we want to keep growing at some level, positive critique, but, but not at the expense of, of true worship, right? Well, what about these chronic threats? Yellow flags, we might say. Well, first here is a, is a distracted heart. A distracted heart. Now, is there one of us that hasn't been distracted in corporate worship? Uh, certainly, that is true for all of us, perhaps even on a weekly basis. 
but to know that that's not just something that there, there very well may be a, a, a deliberate effort by the evil one to do that week after week after week. And to expect the, the battle is, is to, to be half on our way to fighting against it. Um, this could be a heart like Martha's, you know, overly concerned with service at the expense of resting long enough to truly learn from and linger in the presence of Christ. Um, even some of you that are, are just great servants in the church and you're active in a number of ways, your mind can be going in, in all the different, what do I have next? Who can I, you know, what can I do? I, I got to make sure the coffee's, you know, you know we're thinking about a, a ton of different things. Instead of right now, I need to linger in the presence of Christ to hear his promises and focus my mind on the Lord. Another chronic threat, one we might expect, is an an uninformed heart. So a heart that desires to worship, but does not understand what a worship service is and what it's actually seeking to accomplish, and why it has been constructed the way it is, right? So this is where each new believer begins. It is, but is is not where each believer should remain. Um, As a side note, we we often disciple young believers in their, their understanding of the Bible, of Bible doctrines, of, of how to break sinful habits and, and all sorts of these things that are essential. But I'm not sure we, we always teach them how to worship well, how to worship in the assembly well, to unpack each detail of why the Lord's people gather the way they do. And I know I'm speaking to a, 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 a church that's led, Josh and Aaron, we are of the same mind with, with what is essential and what ought to be there. If I was in a different context, I wouldn't assume as much. But I know uh, what this church aims to do as far as the, the worship service. So I, I think we can assume that, that Christians will just learn this by osmosis. And in some way they will. Uh, but how much... Um, how much good can be accomplished by helping the people of God grow in their ability to worship well when the Lord's people gather. Thirdly is a passive heart. Hearts that are content to worship, to watch uh, worship happen. Positively speaking, this might be like a sports game. We go and, and we're just enjoying the food and, you know, watching these people that we admire do their thing. And there's a, there's a passive leaning back, realizing that if I don't do anything, I could leave. It's not going to affect anything that's going on out there. I could stay. I could cheer. I could not cheer. Not going to affect really anything that's going on. I just understand I can be passive if I want. And I can enjoy it in a passive manner. This is also perhaps uh, a passive heart could also be one that watches with as, as much interest as that beginner piano recital <laughs> that we envision. It could be the, you know, the, the hot cross buns that's being played on the piano, um, or Mary had a little lamb, and it's like, I'm here, I'm supporting this person that I love, 
but I am not that interested <laughs> with, with the, the song per se. It's not my thing, right? So there's just a, a checked out, I know this is a good thing to attend, but I, I you know, it's, not, it's not like I want to be here. That as well is something that we have to uh, be on guard about and to ask, if that is true of my heart, why, why is it responding that way? What am I missing, right? Um, am, am, I, am I so um, distracted with other things? Am I so in love with the wrong things that leads me to assume uh, that I don't need to be transfixed with all that God has for me? Not to say that that's an equal parallel for the, the elementary piano recital. <laughs> we'll just let that be what it is. But number four is a naive heart. And we might even say a, a, a peacetime mentality, a heart that has a, a, a peacetime mentality. So this is the Christian that simply doesn't realize that he or she may have as much temptation to sin, spiritual warfare happening on a Sunday morning that at any other point in their week. I mean, know that Satan would love to work in overdrive on Sunday mornings trying desperately to distract, to deceive, to distort, and to dislodge any good thing, any good grace that God would want to do in you as his child when you gather. Expect to go to war on Sunday mornings for the glory of God's name and in what might seem to be the safest place on earth. But know that that is going to take, uh, we, we can't be naive that this is just um, a, a place where I'll just glide into with no effort uh, the, the grace that God is, is desiring to give to me when the church gathers. It's going to take a purposeful, uh, even a warlike mentality. 